Well, good morning again, church. Thanks for gathering here. Thank you for bringing the church uh, into this sanctuary. It is great to gather with you to be able to worship. Uh, if you're somebody that's new to Crosspoint, my name is Jamie, and it's my joy. It's my privilege to be one of the pastors at Crosspoint. If you're somebody that's gathered for Crosspoint at home, thanks for inviting us into uh, your living room, dining room, wherever you happen to be watching from. Uh, this morning, we are continuing the series that comes out of the 23rd Psalm. It's called Restore My Soul. This is a line in there where the psalmist, who is being led by the good shepherd says, you are the one who restores my soul. And so it's both a promise, but we also want to focus on it this fall together as a prayer. It's something that we would cry out at a soul level, like, Lord, we need our souls restored because the reality of life and just the things that are happening, like we get beat down, our souls can begin to sort of shrivel up, wither away. And maybe you feel that just very poignantly this morning. I don't know the particulars of what you brought in, but know this, there is a God who has created you, designed you, determined the very time and places in which you would live, and he knows everything that you brought in here this morning. He knows everything that is sort of warring against your soul, and he is inviting you. He's inviting me. He's inviting all of us to examine the truth of what it is that will bring restoration to the soul. And so each week in this series, we're looking at what is oftentimes a false narrative, something that is just a dominant narrative about how we're supposed to live, and it makes promises that it can never deliver on, contrasted with the truth of who God is and what he promises us. And one will lead to your soul shriveling up and dying, and the other will lead to the flourishing, the renewal, the restoration of your soul. And so this morning, as we get into things, I want to share a quote that I, I ran across uh, this week. I will not attempt to pronounce the, the name of the person who said this because I think it's French and I can't really pronounce that, but you'll see it up on the screen. But this man who wrote this, he's talking about a particular project, all right? He's talking about what goes into when you have something to do and there's things that you need to organize. And in this case, what he's talking about is gathering a group of people for this project that would be to build a ship so that it might sail across the ocean, right? And perhaps you've heard this quote before. He says this, he says, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood. Don't assign them tasks and work, but rather, he says, teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. You tracking with what he's saying? There's one way to approach a project, right? And certainly you need people to gather the wood and you need people to do certain things, all right, and certain tasks. But he's like, I got something better. Why don't you cast a vision for the immensity of the sea? Why don't you find that people's hearts like a way to draw them, to woo them? So there might be this longing for like, that's what I want to experience. And yes, all these things are gonna happen to make that a reality, but it starts with this vision of the immensity of the sea, and this morning, what we're going to look at is the psalmist painting a picture for us of something that is grander and bigger and more majestic than the sea, because the sea is still part of the creation. But we have an invitation to know the creator, the one who made it, and he is inviting us, he's wooing us, he's creating in us this longing that we would know this truth, that you and I, that every single person is made for God. That's the truth that we need to look at this morning. We need to not just look at, well, do this step and do this, and not that there's not helpful things, but friends, we need a bigger vision of the immensity of our God 
that our souls might come alive, that there might be this resonance that happens of like, oh yeah, that's what I am made for. And that we would be brought along into that great vision, that mission, that we get to do that collectively as a church. And so the truth we'll dive into this morning is that you and I are made for God. And we wanna talk about moving from idolatry that brings no life at all to a true worship. Because the reality of the situation is this, that every single person, Every one of us here, everybody gathered online, every person that's lived in the past, and every person that lives into the future, every person is a worshiper. That is the truth of the matter. Now the question becomes, what are you worshiping? Because there are things that will just rob us of life, and then there's the one true good and beautiful thing that is God, our Heavenly Father, that will actually bring restoration to our soul. So to help us with that, we want to look at Psalm 115 this morning. So if you brought a Bible, please turn to that, open an app on your phone, find this text. You do not need my thoughts and opinions All right, on things like we need to hear from God. There is one perfect thing that happens in a worship gathering, and it is the proclamation. It's literally the reading of God's word. That, that's it, right? This is his perfect inerrant word to us. And so I want to read it in its entirety, and then we'll make our way through it. As always, too, you can go to our website, cp.church. On your phone in the lower right corner, you'll see that little icon with the footsteps. If you click there, you'll see a spot to click for sermon notes. The text is there, some space to take notes as well. So Psalm 115, I'm going to read it in its entirety, then we'll take it in some sections here. It begins, it is a very famous psalm, particularly verse 1. Starts out this way. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. They have noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not feel. Feet, but they do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throats. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Verse 9. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. And so as we look at this this morning, I'm going to break it up uh, in, in a way that theologians call a chiasm. If you're like, I have no idea what that means, that's okay. Here's the simple explanation, is that picture this as five sections, all right? And the, the first and the fifth go together, and then the second and the fourth, and it kind of meets in the middle, this third section. And so if you wonder why we're jumping around, it's driving towards this particular point that we see in the center of this psalm. 
And so as we get into it, as we look at verses one to three and then 16 to 18, it's just reminding us like right out of the gate, you and I have been created for worship. Again, everybody's a worshiper. The question becomes, what are you worshiping? And so we've been created, we've been designed for worship. That's why the, the psalmist starts out this way. He says, not to us, O Lord, not to us. That the psalmist is calling for everybody, including himself, not to focus on self, not to try and find the answers within, but rather to direct praise and attention, focus to the God of the universe. He's saying, listen, I have tried self. I've made the story about me, and it always leads to devastation. It never delivers on its promises. So what we need to do, he's saying, is like deny self. It's not about me, not to us. If you want your soul to be restored and renewed, if I want that for myself, we need to start here. We need to see it's not about you, it's not about me. So not to us, O Lord, not to us, the psalmist says, but to your name give glory. That's where praise should be directed. That's where attention should be directed. You are worthy of worship. And he says, for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. There have been hard things I know that you have dealt with, that you've endured, even if I don't know the particulars. And yet in that, what the psalmist says is this, that the Lord, all right, has had the steadfast love and faithfulness towards you. Part of that is that you're even here this morning, that God has brought you, he has called you, he has summoned you. You may have thought for a moment, it's like, well, yeah, I set the alarm clock and I made the plans and I drove myself here. But no, no, friends, it is so much bigger than that. The Lord has invited us, he has wooed us, he has called us here, and he wants to remind us how we are to find what brings restoration and renewal to our soul, how we actually find joy. And the psalmist is instructing us, it's not about us, and then it continues, all right? It says, why should the nation say, where is their God? And this question that gets posed, we don't know exactly the context for this psalm, but it's likely written either while they're in exile or maybe they've just returned. And it's as if the surrounding nations are saying like, really, that's your big bad God that you worship? Like, look at all the terrible things that have happened to you. And the psalmist is like, no, mm -mm, I'm not gonna stand for that. Why should the nation say, where is their God? God. Like the psalmist is calling us back to this reality that all of us are invited as his people to proclaim what the Lord has done so that the nations would not mock, but rather join in. Like God has created a people so that all the nations on the earth would be blessed. And so he wants this to happen. It's why towards the end, he says, the dead do not praise the Lord, but we will bless the Lord. It's the way for the psalmist to say, if you're using your breath right now, if you're using your energy right now to praise the Lord, then that's gonna go on forever. And so we will bless the Lord. That's where it starts. And so if we wanna have this restoration for our soul, we need to ask ourselves, what are we pursuing? Is it self? Is it an inward focus? And we know enough what to say at church, right? Like none of us would be, would, you know, would, would say, you know, not, not to God, not to God, but to me, right? Like no one would say that. But what does our life reveal? We'll press into this a little bit more as we get into verses four to eight and some questions that can help sort of diagnose what are the things that we give attention to, but just at a high level, just think about the self for a moment. Theologian David Wells once wrote these words, I'll, I'll read here, and he has some difficult words 
Some words of honesty, words I think we need to pay attention to, but, but they're weighty, they're, they're difficult, they're things I don't think we like to hear. We're okay maybe with it being said about somebody else, but not me. But he says there's this indictment really, not just individually, but collectively as the church. He says this, much of the church today especially that part which is evangelical. If you're like, is that us? Yes, it is, okay. Um, Is in captivity to this idolatry of the self. This is a form of corruption far more profound than the list of infractions that typically pop into our minds when we hear the word sin, right? So we tend to think of these things out here. It's like, no, 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 there's something far bigger going on. He says this, We are trying to hold at bay the gnats of small sins while swallowing the camel of self. Think about that imagery for a moment. We get very good at kind of keeping those gnats away and yet have missed out. Like we're we're ignoring the fact that we're swallowing the camel of self. It's a ridiculous image, except it's not because this is what we do. He continues, The contemporary church is whoring after this God as assiduously as the Israelites in their darker days. It is baptizing as faith the pride that leads us to think much about ourselves and much of ourselves. There's a problem of self. There's a problem of pride. And it's not just out there in the world. For one, I know it's up here on the stage with the headset microphone on. And in your moments of honesty, it's you and it's me, it's all of us. And the Lord wants to free us from that. The Lord has so much more for us, but the more we give into this pursuit of self, the more our souls will shrivel up and die. And so if that's how the psalmist kind of begins with these bookends, let's look now at verses four to eight and then 12 to 15, where we really get this very clear contrast in worship. All of us are called to worship, And now here we see in great detail this contrast of what misdirected worship looks like, what the Bible calls idolatry, and what rightly ordered worship looks like. So I'll read again verses four to eight. Notice the way that the idols, the false gods, the pseudo-gods are described. Their idols are silver and gold, so they, on the surface, they could look somewhat impressive, right? I don't think any of us would turn away silver or gold. It's like, oh, that, that looks kind of interesting, mesmerizing perhaps. But they're the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but they do not feel. Feet, but they do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. So hold that in mind. That's the the list, the false gods, the idols. Now, ask yourself this. like, Do you see the difference between verses 12 to 15, that these are meant to pair together? Notice how the Lord is described here in contrast to the idols. Verse 12, the Lord has remembered us. So apparently our God is actually able to remember. It says he will bless us, that he's actively involved in our lives. So he's actually able to do something. He's not just this inanimate object. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. And then at a more general level, it even says he will bless those who fear the Lord. 
People in Israel, outside of Israel, anybody who fears the Lord, he will bless those. And he says, both the small and the great. So if by worldly standards, you're nothing impressive, you've got a, you know, a bad resume, nothing really to show forth, he's like, the Lord will bless you. And if you're in the world's eyes, great and impressive and all that, the Lord blesses you as well. It doesn't matter what you bring, because at the end of the day, it's all about God. He's, he's blessing. It's this, this equality that we see. And it tells us, verse 14, may the Lord give you increase, like the psalmist is praying to this God who knows that he's actively involved. And he says, not only to you, but to your children. Like this God is so alive and active that he works not just here, but in the generations to come. That's the story that we are invited into. And then verse 15, may you be blessed by the Lord and this Lord, this God, this one true God, it says, made heaven and earth. So our God is not silver and gold. Our God is not like the inanimate objects that have eyes but can't see and ears but can't hear, hands and can't feel. Like, do you notice this? Do you see the difference? On the one hand, it is a picture of something that is it's dead, it's powerless, it's impotent versus the true God who is alive. He's active. He's intimately involved in your life and in my life. So this is the contrast that's being laid out. The prophet Isaiah, let me read to you a few verses out of Isaiah 44, wants to drive home this point in a similar way. It begins to talk about how idols were made because it was not uncommon in that time, in that place to see somebody fashion an idol, this little statue or whatever, right? Might've been a metal worker doing things with gold and silver. It might've been somebody working with like cutting down a tree and carving something. And they would have had what would have been the look of you know, eyes and the nose and ears and all of that. And there's this contrast. And so there's a very real sense where Isaiah, under the inspiration of God's spirit, is just trying to showcase for us, friends, how ludicrous, how ridiculous this is. So he says this. Look at these words in Isaiah 44. Here he's describing what goes into making one of these idols. He says this. Describing this man, he says, he cuts down cedars, he chooses a cypress tree or an oak, and he lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, the rain nourishes it. Then, all right, so this man plants this tree, picture doing this in your yard, right? It's watered, it's taken care of, it's cultivated. Then guess what happens? It becomes fuel for a man. How so? Well, he takes part of it and he warms himself. He kindles a fire. There's this energy that he's gathered around there of the fire. He also, he can bake bread over that so he can consume the bread. He can have energy that way. Also, he makes a God and worships it. He makes it an idol and he falls down before it. Isaiah continues. Half of it, he burns in the fire. Over the half, he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied and he warms himself and says, ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it, he makes into a God, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my God. Do you see, I mean, just in answer to this question, right? Like, do you see how ridiculous this is? I mean, Isaiah is just driving this point home. He's like, all right. So you're telling me, friend, let me get this straight, all right? I know you're a you know, skilled craftsman and you, you, you know, and also you're maybe a skilled gardener because you grew this tree and you nourished it and you watered it and you cultivated it. And when it got to a certain size, you chopped that thing down, all right? 
and you split it into firewood, and you started a fire, and you warmed yourself around it, you and your family and your friends, like you had the best fire in the neighborhood, right? And then you invited people over to like have meat and bread that was cooked over there. Cool, so far so good, right? And then he says, oh, and you also then took part of that same tree, all right? And you fashioned it into a God, and then you bowed down to it and said, deliver me, for you are my God. I mean, there's just an, he was trying to paint this picture like, this is astonishing. Are, are we serious right now? So think about it. This property, maybe many of you have seen this, right? There are several down trees. Um, thank you to those that came to, to help clear the, those away. Um, over the last week or so, I have not seen anyone from our church come take a, a remnant of a piece of the oak tree that fell behind the social hall and you know, take it home and then carve it and bring it back to church and set it outside the sanctuary and say, deliver me for you are my God, right? Like that would be ridiculous. To my knowledge, nobody has done that. Not advocating for that. I'm glad you haven't done that. Uh, But no one has. Like, there's no temptation for that. I don't think that ran through anybody's mind. And so we can look at this then, and yeah, have a posture of like, of course I see that it's ridiculous. These ancient, archaic sort of people, like, I mean, that's just so dumb. I'm glad we are far more sophisticated. I'm glad we have moved on from that. Of course, that is so silly that you would bow down to this thing this thing that you made and now you're going to call it a God? doesn't make any sense. But what we have to see is this isn't just a story about people several thousand years ago. Like, this is my story. This is your story. It's why Paul would write in Romans chapter one. He would say, listen, he's talking about everybody as a worshiper. And then he would say, we exchange the truth of God for a lie. There's this devastating exchange We exchange the truth of God for a lie, and the lie is this, that we worship the creation, that which has been created rather than the creator. And so these good things in this world, we start to make ultimate. And so yeah, we probably didn't cut any of the remnants from the downed trees in the hurricane and fashion them into an an idol, but we do the same thing. As John Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories. They continue to produce idols. Something that I think I need to give my time, my energy, attention, it gets elevated to the place of worship. And then look with me back at verse eight. Do you see these devastating words that are given? But it is truth that we need to see. It says this, those who make them Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in him. So again, think about the idols. Think about the way they're described by Isaiah. Think about the way they're described by the psalmist. They are powerless. They are dead, right? They've got no influence. They really are just these inanimate objects. And so it's not just to stay at that level, but the psalmist is saying, listen, friends, it's this truth that's throughout the scriptures. Maybe a way to say it is is this, that we become what we behold. And we are constantly, the human heart is always beholding something. And it's either God and worship of him, or it's the things that are of the created world. We fail to worship the creator and we behold something else. Now we should give him praise for the things that he's given to us, but so often that thing gets elevated. And so we behold our career and we work like crazy and we never rest. And we think functionally, yeah, God needed to rest on the Sabbath, but not me, the world needs me. And it's idolatrous. 
It's sin to be repented of. And then you think about these inanimate objects. They're powerless, they're lifeless, they're dead. Ask yourself, I gotta ask myself, have you felt spiritually dry, dead, disconnected? It would be important to take some time to do some heart work to examine at a soul level, is it possible that verse eight is playing out? Oh, I'm becoming like that which I worship. I worship my career. I worship approval. I worship just having a comfortable life. I worship having power and control and influence. I'm caught up in trying to acquire more, thinking this possession will satisfy, this next thing, if I only can get into this house. If you're like, well, no, I'm not a spender. I save, okay, good, there's a lot of wisdom in that. And yet, we also, though, can save to the point of thinking we don't need God. Thinking saving will save us, as if we don't need anything, not realizing that it all comes from God. Like our call is to steward, we're not owners. And when we begin to worship these things, friends, it's no wonder that we feel dead and cold and lifeless and powerless. The Lord is inviting us into so much more. The theologian G.K. Beale said it this way, we resemble what we revere, either for ruin or restoration. This always plays out. All of us are imitators, and there is no neutrality. We should disabuse ourselves of the notion that we can be spiritually neutral. We are either being conformed to an idol of the world or to God. So Psalm 115 and Isaiah 44, that's not just for those ancient people thousands of years ago. This is present day, 21st century, central Florida, you and I. There's no neutrality. We're either resembling, we're resembling what we revere, he says, either for ruin or restoration. So one of the things I think would be helpful for a moment, not because it needs to be our focus, but so that we can begin to discern where are the places where we veered off course? What are the things that have a hold of us? So I wanna put before you four questions, I think, that can help diagnose uh, what some of our idols are. Because back then, it was a bit more straightforward. Oh, yeah, you've, you've got the image of silver or gold, or you've got this piece of wood that you've carved. Yeah, you shouldn't bow down to that, right? But we feel a little more sophisticated. And sometimes then it's hard to discern. We get things mixed up. So these all come from the book Counterfeit Gods. There's a link in the sermon notes. I would commend it to you, but just at a very basic level here, here's a few things. We could spend a lot of time on this, but I just want to put these out here so you could be thinking about this, processing these things even in community groups uh, this week. The first is this. It's a little wordy, but it says this. What do you habitually think about to get joy and comfort in the privacy of your heart? Here's another way to say it. What do you daydream about? Like when you have a moment, like where does your mind naturally go? Kind of fill in the blank. Ah, if I had this, then I'd have some contentment, be at peace, be a better Christian if I had, whatever, right? Like our mind goes to all these sorts of things. Like what do you daydream about? This quote from William Temple, you see there, your religion is what you do with your solitude. We hate solitude most of the time, right? Oh, it's too quiet. Grab my phone, grab my device, distract myself, scroll through something. Yep, losing in fantasy football again, whatever. You just like keep going, right? It is important to have sometimes a solitude. 
partly so that God in his kindness might reveal, oh, yeah, that's the thing my mind naturally drifts toward. That's the thing that has a grip on my heart. That's the thing that's robbing me of life. How about this more practically? Jesus was the one who said, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. It gets misconstrued all the time. Many people think the Bible condemns money, right? Money is the root of all evil. Nope, not true. The love of money is the root of all evil, meaning that there can be this love, there can be this pursuit of it, and guess what? You can be very, very rich and have a love of money, and you can be very, very poor and have a love of money, all right? It's about the love of it, and there are people that have tons of money who are not in love with money, all right? And there are people that have hardly any money, amount of money and don't love money, right? It's, the point is, do you love it? Is it the thing that drives you? Is it the thing that keeps you working insane hours? Is it the thing that just motivates you and that you sacrifice for? So how do you spend your money? Just a very basic level. You want to know some of the idols in your life? Just spend some time with that question. Take a look at the credit card statement. Take a look at the Amazon purchase history, right? Like, what, what is it that drives us? Again, money's not the problem, but it's this love of money that gets us in trouble what about this? Particularly, I would say, in, if you've been in, in and around the church, you would identify as a, as a believer, right? This question in particular, how do you respond to unanswered prayers and frustrated hopes? That's a hard question. Because there is real frustration. There's real things to be grieved. I know everyone in this room, at some point, you've brought prayers to God, hopes to God, and it hasn't been answered the way that you want. And this question is not meant to ridicule or to demean that at all. But it is helpful to pay attention to what's going on. Like, oh yeah, how do I respond? When maybe I've asked for this thing, is there a bitterness that creeps in? To resentment? Are you able to actually rejoice with those who rejoice? Can you weep with those who weep? Like, what's going on at a heart level? Friends, your, your soul will not be restored and renewed if that's what's going on for us. How do we respond? Pay attention to that. And somewhat related to it, what do your emotions reveal? So the next time you're super sad, feeling depressed, the next time you're super anxious, the next, the next time you are super angry, like to ask yourself, what does this reveal? Maybe to get a little space from it. I realize in particular, that's hard. And then, you know, people have asked me that before. I'm like, oh yeah, I can struggle with anger. What's it revealing? I'm like, I don't know. In the moment, like that I'm angry. That's what it's revealing, right? But like get a little space from it. And we begin maybe to see, oh, yeah. At the end of the day, my will was being blocked. I wanted this to go a certain way. I wanted Jamie's will to be done, and it wasn't happening. Something was getting in the way, and it's producing anger. Like, it's very likely that whatever that is, like it's revealing this idolatry in my heart, and Jesus is not calling us to fixate on that, but he wants to free us from it. So friends, in this, this list, these questions, I think they're very helpful. But if you were to stop there and you were to take that, okay, we've diagnosed our idols. All right, you've got this and I've got this. And right, I mean, depressing, depressing church service. It's like, all right, we've all identified our idols, all right? We're all idolatrous. We're all whoring after these things, as David Wells says, right? It was a strong language. And you'd be like, all right, have a great week, right? It's terrible. The point is not to fixate on those things, 
The point is rather to identify them, to repent of them, to move in a new direction, to move towards Jesus and what he's done. What actually takes place if we want transformation is it happens by worship. As we trust in the Lord, as we call out to the Lord, this is what the psalmist is going to encourage us in. You want to be freed and transformed? Do not fixate on your sin. Fixate on your Savior. Do not fixate on yourself. Fixate on Jesus, on the Savior of all of us. That's what renews and restores your soul. And so in verses 9 to 11, in that section, we get these words. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. In the midst of pain, suffering, confusion, unanswered prayer, there's an invitation still. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. Will you worship the Lord regardless of circumstances? He is, he's your help. He is your shield. He is with you. He is involved. He is not that thing that you're pursuing that you have and I have bought in the lie that it'll bring life to you. I mean, I know it's very basic, but I think it's worth repeating. Like, fill in the blank. Your career cannot die for you. Your children cannot die for you. Your grandchildren cannot die for you. Your vacation can't die for you. Your 401k cannot die for you and pay for your sins, right? Like, none of those things will ultimately satisfy. It's an invitation. Worship the Lord. Not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. When we give glory to God, it sets things right. It recalibrates our hearts. It pushes us in a healthy way towards what is good and beautiful and true. We experience what God has for us. That's what the psalmist is saying. And I love what the apostle Paul says as he picks up on these themes. And I want to look at this last verse. He's writing to the church in Corinth, and he's using language from the Old Testament. He's going to speak of unveiled faces, because at the time, what he's referring to was in the Old Testament when Moses would be in the presence of God. He literally had to put a veil over his face because he was just so radiant from being in the presence of God, because people were like, it's blinding, right? And he's saying, guess what? There's no more veil. We have this free access to God, to what the writer of Hebrews would speak of that this curtain has been torn into, like we can enter now into the very presence of God. We can behold God, friends. And what Paul is gonna lay out is so radically beautiful and simple that I miss it all the time. But it is the thing that we need to come back to. We become what we behold. And what the scriptures, what the gospel's inviting us into is to behold our savior. Do not leave today beholding your sin and your idolatry. Leave today, the prayer is beholding Jesus making much of him, worshiping him. And in that, he will deal with our idolatry. He will free us from our enslavement to sin, to lesser things. We need a bigger vision. And this is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. It's so beautiful. And that's not obviously easy to do, but this is, it is simple, right? Don't fixate on your sin, fixate on your savior. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. This is what we get invited into now. This is what Jesus has made possible. We would have been cut off. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. He dies in our place. He's our substitute. And now we get to enter into the Holy of Holies. We get to enter into the presence of God. So we behold the glory of the Lord. And then it says this. Here's the transformation we all long for. In that space, we are being transformed into the same image. Image of what? 
the image of Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the icon. This is our savior. You and I, Genesis 1 and 2, created as image bearers to perfectly reflect God, but sin mars that, taints that, turns all, things, like, things begin to unravel. But what is happening here, when you behold the glory of God, it's not instantaneous, but do you notice the language? You're being transformed in the image from one degree of glory to another. You are being made to look more like Jesus, not because you're seeing your sin, that you're focusing on self, you're focusing, you're beholding, you're revering Jesus. And so it's just the next click on the dial from one degree of glory to another. For this comes not from you and your effort. This comes from the Lord who is the spirit. That's the encouragement. What we do here on a Sunday morning, roughly one hour or so out of our, our week, is an opportunity to do that together, to behold together, that transformation is happening like right here, right now, not just when you go home and seek to apply things, but God is doing something through his spirit here. Now he does things through his spirit outside of here, but everything I believe flows out of this. And we're coming in, we're beholding, we're worshiping God. And so I'll close with this. Where is your focus? Is it on your sin? Is it on your shortcomings? Is it on your shame? Jesus saying, no, 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 focus on me. See what I've done for you. See him bleeding out on the cross for you. In those moments where you have frustrations and disappointment and real grief to take to the Lord, wondering, does he love? Look no further than the cross of Christ and remember that he loves you, that he's died for you, that you've been invited into his presence. I'll close with this C.S. Lewis quote. It's a little bit lengthy, but I think it drives home just this idea so wonderfully. He says this, your real, your new self, which is Christ's and also yours and yours just because it is his, will not come as long as you are looking for it. It will come when you are looking for him. Does that sound strange? He says, well, the same principle holds, you know, for more everyday matters, even in the social life. You will never make a good impression on other people unless you stop thinking about what sort of impression you are making. Even in literature and art, no man who bothers about originality will ever be original. Whereas if you simply try to tell the truth without caring two pence how often it has been told before, you will, nine times out of ten, become original without ever having noticed it. The principle runs through all of life from top to bottom. Lewis continues, so friends, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have given away will be really yours anyway. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, Loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him. And with him, everything else thrown in. So as we go before the Lord in, in prayer, as we continue in our time of worship, where we are going to continue to behold God and to pray, him, pray to him and praise him, be asking Spirit, Spirit, lead me. What do I need to repent of? It's, we have to wrestle with that, but we don't stay there. 
And we're gonna remember what Jesus has done. We're gonna revere what Jesus has done. We're gonna rejoice together in what Jesus has done and trust that the spirit, not just someday off in the future, but like right here, right now, is gonna transform you and me from one degree of glory to another by the power of the spirit. Like here and now in this place. So let me pray for that and we'll continue in worship. Father, thank you for your love, your kindness, your mercy toward us. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for the access that we have to behold you, to worship, that we can come with unveiled face. Spirit, thank you for your work. Holy Spirit, you know everybody's stories. You know every last detail. You know every hardship. You know every celebration. You know everything that is creating like anxiousness or bitterness, frustration, despair. God, you know it all. And I pray right now, Spirit, that you would be at work in each one of our hearts and our lives, that you would be bringing this restoration, this renewal of our souls by helping us to see more clearly the good news, the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. May we, every time we look and we see and we're reminded of our sin and our brokenness and the frustration or shame that we feel, may we take... 10 more looks at Jesus and remember him. And may that be the dominant vision. May that be what drives us and motivates us. May we behold you right now in spirit and help us transform us to become more like Christ. We believe your promises. We're asking you to do that, not just someday off in the future, but like right now, transform us from one degree of glory to another that we might look and reflect more who Jesus is. We need your grace. It's by your power. We ask that you would do this for your glory and our joy. And we pray in Jesus' good name, amen.